Good morning. I hope that you're doing well and that you're knowing the Lord's help and blessing in your life. This morning, we are in the Gospel according to John again, chapter 9, and we're going to read from verse 1 through 7. Do bear in mind that the story that I'm going to be telling this morning is actually across the whole of this chapter, all 41 verses. But I'd rather us begin by reading a shorter text and work our way progressively through the story as we go along. So I hope you found it. John chapter 9, verses 1 through 7. As he passed by, he being Jesus, he saw a man blind from birth. And his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, It was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would open our eyes, that you would give us sight. We pray, Lord, that we would leave this place, or if we are watching from home, that we will rise from where we sit, seeing. We pray that we would see in the deepest of ways, in the deepest of senses. We ask, Heavenly Father, that you would um, remove and eradicate completely all blindness, spiritually, mentally, emotionally, and yes, physically, because, Lord, we know that you are able. And we pray, O oh God, that as you work in us by the power of your Holy Spirit, we would see Jesus. It is in his name and for his sake that we pray and ask these things. Amen. Those who are blind are unable to see because of injury, disease, or congenital condition. We can all understand the passage before us by the power of the Holy Spirit at work within us. But a blind person's personal experience and interpretive location perhaps gives them a greater depth of understanding the power of this story, at least so far as blindness is concerned. Most of us, however, have to imagine what it must be like to be 
blind. And if we were to articulate what we feel it must be like, we would doubtless get it wrong, fall short, or even be found offensive in some way. This being the case, I sought out insight from people who were born blind. One chap, a Christian musician named Timothy, writes this. As a completely blind person myself, I can certainly say beyond a shadow of a doubt, I do not see black because I have never experienced black. To try to describe this, it would be beyond anything that you could even imagine. I have the perception of light and darkness, but the light and darkness have no colors attached. So in essence, they are neither black nor white in my eyes. It is literally a lack of any color. I either see that there is a bright light or it is dark, but there are absolutely no colors attached to that. I suspect that this answer will not make a whole lot of sense to you. Words just do not illustrate or convey the full scope of what it is that a blind person with a light perception, at least such as myself, can see. I can tell you, for example, I see light and darkness, that you can understand, but for you, light is associated with a specific color, as is darkness. But in my world, it is literally a lack of colors. Before you say this is sad, try to understand it from my perspective. For me, as a completely blind person who was born this way, it is simply the way things are. Frankly, I find sight to be absolutely fascinating. As you find blindness fascinating, I too find sight to be as well. That's interesting. And perhaps for you this morning, it is helpful to hear that. In short, as I read elsewhere, if you are born blind, it does not feel like anything. People do not see black. They see nothing. A world without color. A world without even a concept of color and no frame of reference to understand it. A world which can even go beyond this gentleman who has some sense of light perception and, and there is no sense or concept of light or darkness, but for the outside observer, there definitely is darkness. But this is all that a person born blind has known. This is all that they have experienced. They have no frame of reference for understanding anything else. And so walking in visual darkness, a blind person may nonetheless entertain a fascination with and a longing for this missing sense called sight. The other senses may very well be enhanced and they often are the ability to hear, to taste, to smell, to touch, and to feel. 
But for some, there is this lingering thought that the missing sense of sight may be one that ties everything else together. So it was with a man sat near the temple, outside its gates. His visual impairment had led him to economic impoverishment. His parents, still alive, were unable to support him. He was not able, all things considered, to hold down a job. And there was not a benefits system uh, in place to ensure that the most needy and vulnerable members of society were well looked after and provided for. There do not seem to have been any charitable patrons in his life who might have looked after him. He was, therefore, not only blind, but a beggar. He sat in visual darkness. There seems, from what he could hear, to have been a disturbance in the temple. A man named Jesus had been teaching there. You can read about this in chapter 8. What he began with would have gotten anyone's attention, but especially a man who had never been able to see anything. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. He had gone on to say a lot of things that apparently didn't go down so well with everyone. Stuff about being a slave to sin. Stuff about even dying in sins and facing judgment if they didn't believe in him. Stuff that made it sound like God was his father and indeed that he himself was equal with God. Stuff about them rejecting the truth and believing lies. Thus living as uh, though the devil were their father. And his audience responded to that by taking it up a notch. And they said he was demon-possessed. Jesus said something else that makes them ask mockingly, Have you seen Abraham? To which Jesus said, Before Abraham was, I am. It seemed to be a statement of pre-existence, but not only a statement of pre-existence, but even a statement of eternal pre-existence. Not simply that this man who had not yet reached 50 was before Abraham, but is before Abraham. That is, his construct of time transcends what we are familiar with. Before Abraham was, I was. No, before Abraham was, I am. That is, I simply exist, not I existed, but I exist. And, and this is this I am, as we learned even last week, has other shades of meaning that recall Yahweh, the Lord God himself. And this really was the last straw. People took up stones to throw at Jesus, but Jesus hid they couldn't find him. 
And perhaps the, the blind man, though he could not hear all that was being said or all that was going on, sat near outside the temple and he might have heard people coming from inside the temple talking about these things. He might have heard some noise going on, some disturbance that was coming from the temple. And he sits there outside where all of this is going on and then hears a commotion drawing nearer, the shuffling of feet. The rustling of robes, hard, belabored breathing as though someone's been running, perhaps even hiding, hushed voices, Jesus and his disciples. They're making a discreet exit after escaping the stones of Jesus's opponents. Things seem to have calmed down a bit. and They slow down and the blind man listens in. The men Jesus is with seem to, to be young, mostly in their teens. And some of the stuff they say is just immature and there does not seem to be a filter. And they loudly ask questions in the presence of the people about whom they are asking. One of these fellows asks, Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents that he was born blind. A bit rude, but he has a point. The question he asks is about the intersection of suffering and sin. The assumption he makes, a common assumption at that time and even amongst some today, is that suffering is because of sin. And that sin leads directly to suffering. This is not an entirely incorrect assumption. The way of the transgressor is hard. If we're honest, we know all about that. Perhaps some even more than others. But we cannot escape the reality that our misbehavior has time and again brought consequences. All suffering comes from sin, does it not? After all, everything was good and then Adam and Eve at the very beginning had to mess things up for everyone. Sinning, rebelling against God and, and bringing more sin and its consequences of death and decay into the world. All suffering is therefore in some way traceable to sin. All have sinned. All fall short of the glory of God. The wages of sin is death, the worst form of suffering. And, uh, and, and all die because all have sinned. All suffer consequences of sin in some way. And sometimes there are meaningful consequences. Let me be clear. There are meaningful consequences for people who are not themselves morally culpable. Do you understand what I'm saying this morning? That, that someone else might have done something, but you have to pay the price. Someone else has committed a sin that has impact upon you and your life. 
It's like the stone that's thrown into the water and the uh, immediate plopping of that stone down into the water creates a ripple effect. And thus we find ourselves caught up in the consequences brought on by someone else's wrongdoing. The sins of the father and all of that is something that is concepts that transcends generations throughout all of history. There is some sense of corporate responsibility. One person's sin has an impact on lots of people, but watch it. You're, you're, you're thinking that, that Sin leads to, to suffering, and suffering comes directly from sin. And every, every instance of suffering, and that's kind of the assumption that is here made, every instance of suffering must come from some specific sin. Therefore, this man who is sat here blind must have done something. And remember, he was born blind, so, so he must have done something naughty in the womb. You know, a, a sort of a, a evil prenatal grin and thinks he's going to uh, kick his mum with malice. Or maybe it's not him. Maybe it's something his parents did. In any case, the assumption here made is that he is blind and he must have been born blind because of something he did wrong or something his parents did wrong. And you think that's how it works. Well, it seems simple enough. And that's why there are some who think along those lines. Perhaps that's you this morning. But let me be clear. If that is the case, that is bad news. Very, very bad news for all of us. To be proud is to be foolish. That's what our sister Ada wrote a couple of weeks ago. I asked her if I could share her comments along this line. To be proud is to be foolish. I see that so clearly now, she writes. It shows lack of wisdom and inquiry into the reality of life. The fact that you have gained some good in this life, riches, Good health, accolades, spouses, children, gifts and talents, friends, etc. has nothing to do with what you deserve or not. It doesn't make you better than those who don't have it. So pause for a moment. What she's saying in, in light of this text is just because you have sight doesn't make you better than someone who doesn't. But the disciple who's asking this isn't thinking along those lines. He thinks in some way, whether he would admit it or not, that he is better because he is not suffering in the same way that this man is. Our sister continues, it doesn't make you better than those who don't have these things. As, as you can see, evil people have these things. And people who you think should deserve them don't. The winds of life can change at any moment. 
and anyone can find themselves in a place of want or lack. I saw a blind man one day, and I thought to myself, just because I can see, am I in any way better than this man? My answer was a resounding no. In fact, I do not know what I did to deserve having some of the things that I have. But what I know is that I'm not better than those who don't have it. And God bless you, sister, for those wise and biblical words. If only this disciple had been thinking with that level-headedness. There was a righteous man in ancient times. His name was Job. He suffered. And his suffering was not directly connected to any sin he had committed, despite what his friends were telling him. Those closest to him came to him and said, you must have done something. Think about it. You must have done some wrong to suffer in this way. Now, of course, to say that his suffering was not directly connected to his sin or to a specific sin is not to say that he had no sin to confess. At the end of the book of Job, Job confesses that he responded to his suffering with words spoken out of ignorance. I know, he says to God, that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Surely I spoke about things I did not understand, things too wondrous for me to know. And he totally rejects the things he was saying and the, the, the way he was thinking, and he lets God speak. And even then, he doesn't have all of the answers, but he's entrusting himself to a God who does all things well and who does all things wisely. So, in brief, suffering does not always have a direct reason discernible to us, not even sin. But God, on the other hand, he knows exactly what is going on. If, if God saw that something bad was going to happen, you say, why didn't he stop it? Could it be that it is his plan to use what is indeed bad? to bring about something far better than if things had just stayed good. My question is, would we even be sat here today if God hadn't used bad things in his eternal plan and purpose to order our life and shape our existence in such a way that we drew near to him in repentance and faith. That we gather together for worship and fellowship. That we are believing God. And that's being counted to us as righteousness. You need a story to back that up. Look again to the Old Testament, to the book of Genesis. And there you see Joseph. He lived a privileged existence, a wonderful life, and it was all torn from him. The wonderful coat that his father had, in a gesture of favoritism, gifted him, was torn off him by his own brothers. 
He was thrown into a pit. He was sold into slavery. As a slave, he was falsely accused of, of attempted rape and sexual assault by his master's wife. Then he finds himself in prison where he is alone and forgotten. But then, through that, he eventually is elevated to Pharaoh's right-hand man. And it is said, what, what man meant for evil, God meant for good to bring about the salvation of many people. Indeed, if those bad things had not happened, the nations of the world around there would have starved to death. But God sovereignly ordered all things to bring good out of the bad, to turn around what was, was bad and to present something truly good and saving. Jesus says, it was not that this man sinned, it, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. This man was born blind because God has a plan. If he had sight but tragically became blind, God would still have a plan. If he was blind and stayed blind all of his life, God would still have a plan. But make sure you correctly identify what that plan is all about. You've heard it before. God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. Now it's a true statement, but it's often invested with false meaning. I hope you know what I'm talking about, but if not, let me break it down for you. You think that the wonderful plan for your life must surely mean better, not worse, richer, not poorer, not sickness, but health, no hatred, no rejection, no death. There are false prophets out there talking about your best life now. When Jesus said your best life is in heaven, if you are his, if your best life is now, then that means your eternal destination must surely be hell. There are people promising you all the world's treasures when Jesus explicitly said not to lay up treasures for yourself on earth. There are people who lie to you and say suffering and sickness is never God's will for your life. It is always God's will that you be healed. And yet here in this very passage, I just read it. Jesus says that this man was born blind for God, that this man is blind for God. Indeed, he had to be blind for God in order to eventually see by God. God's wonderful plan for your life is not about you. It is about him. It is God's plan. And it points us to God. 
and it brings us and others to God. And it shows the power of God in and through us, whatever our obstacles. This man is blind, Jesus says, so that the works of God might be displayed in him. I hope I'm making sense. There are no accidents with God. God does not waste anything on anyone. Everything works according to God's good plan and purpose. Even if the things he works out that plan with are of necessity indicative of our brokenness in a decaying and dying world. They say it all the time. We know that all things work together for the good of those who love God, who are called according to his purpose. But that's not spoken about life when everything is comfortable, but rather it is spoken of and out of a world that is groaning in severe pain. The very first sermon that I preached as we entered lockdown was from Romans 8 on that subject. If you have any questions, you can go back and learn more about it. But that is not a promise against suffering, rather that is a promise out of suffering. It is indeed a praise out of suffering. All things work together. The purpose of God is greater than the pain. All things work together. All things. And so you can say about whatever suffering you are going through, about whatever challenges you are facing, about whatever obstacles you are up against, that this is so that the works of God might be displayed in you. COVID-19, the works of God, redundancy, the works of God, furlough may be coming to an end, the works of God, strife in your family, perhaps it preceded lockdown, perhaps it has been occasioned by lockdown and being in a confined space with your family so close for so long and your things are, are falling apart, you feel the works of God. And you go down the list of whatever it is that you might be going through, the works of God. Jesus continued, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus knows his, his time is short. But for as long as he is around, he is going to shine his light. To illustrate the darkness shattering implications of this, he turned to the blind man. Yes, the blind man is still sat there listening in to all of this. He could hear Jesus. Imagine you were sat there in your state of darkness and you hear Jesus saying, He's blind so that the works of God might be manifest in him. And you start to wonder, what works of God? And then you hear Jesus say those words he's already spoken in the temple that got everyone stirred up. I am the light of the world. And then you, 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 you listen and Jesus 
Sounds like, sounds like he spits. Okay. And then, and then you hear, you, 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 and you feel that, that, that sense, that, that tingling sensation of, of someone drawing near you and you, and, and, and you can't see them, but you, you feel something wet on your eyes. What is that? Did he just spit and then put something on my eyes? But this man's not asking any questions. He's heard about this Jesus. Then he hears the instructions, go, wash. Go to that pool, it's called Siloam. Siloam, John adds, means sent. And in the, the, uh, the symbolic, significant scheme of the gospel according to John, he's, he's registering, hopefully with us, that, that Jesus has been sent into the world. The light was sent into the darkness. The light was coming into the world. And now the light sends this man, the one who was sent, sends this man to the place called sent. And there he washes in the waters of the sent. Splashes the water in his face. And I'm afraid we can't really imagine that what that is like. To splash the water in your face and for the first time in your life, see. To see your hands. To see water that you have felt. To look up and see the forms of these things that have been speaking all of your life, but you never knew what they looked like. To finally see the sky and people, people even as a kid, they're teaching children the sky is blue and you never understood what the sky was to look at it. Lifted your, you didn't know to lift your head. You didn't know what to do, what blue was. You, there's no concept of describing it, but you look and this is the sky and the sky is blue. And, and for the first time in his life, the light that has always been bouncing off things in front of him, but stopping when it got to his eyes, penetrated his eyes, and all of the components of which the eyes are made, the cornea, the pupil, the iris, the lens, the retina, the cone and the rod sensors, the optic nerve, the brain, and particularly the visual cortex at the back of the brain, for the first time, all of these created features were activated and began to work together, an explosion of light in his darkness, a visual symphony of colors barraging him for the first time, shapes and sizes and figures and forms, people and places and things. A man who sat in darkness has seen a great light. A brain that forever sat in deep darkness 
within its lifelong dark passages, a great light shined. Yes, the light shined in this man's darkness, and the darkness did not overcome it. He came back seeing, some were amazed. The neighbors and those who had seen him before as a beggar were saying, incredulously, is not this the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it, it is he. Others said, no, it, it, but, but he is like him. They just look alike. It can't be the same, can't be the same guy. The, the whole range of responses, doubt and affirmation and denial, but he insists that it's him. And it's me, it's me, and no, it is me. And they don't believe him. It's not enough for some. He keeps saying, I am the man. <laughs> I am the man. I'm that guy. And they said to him, and how, how were your eyes opened? And he answered, the man called Jesus. He made mud and he anointed my eyes. And he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went and I received my sight. And they said, where is he? I, I don't know. Now imagine the challenge of this because this man hasn't seen Jesus. He's heard Jesus. He's felt Jesus, but he's not seen him. He's come back. Jesus isn't there. What does Jesus look like? How can he describe him? Who was this guy who healed him? He can't find him. I don't know where he is. So they bring him to the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees, of course, <laughs> they're not exactly the most helpful bunch of people to, to bring such a man to, not least as this is the Sabbath day, a recurring theme in this, in this gospel account. And even worse, as I've already stated, the Pharisees had already had their fill of Jesus in the temple earlier in the day. It did not end well, it ended with them, as I said, picking up stones uh, with, it would seem, the purpose of stoning him. But the man who's just been healed by Jesus is taken to Jesus. Hearing what had happened, their response is not to give thanks, not to praise God, not to rejoice, not to marvel at the power of God and the marvels and miracles that he's working out, but to probe the man or the mechanics of what had happened. Jesus had indeed spat, and he had made mud, and he had anointed the eyes therewith. And that just really puts them out. You see, saliva was ceremonially unclean. Uh, but after it was applied to this man, he had been healed, and that means Jesus is a man of great power and supernatural authority. He took what was unclean and he brought out of it healing and blessing. It seems a self-defeating argument, so they need something a bit stronger. So they fall back on their favorite complaint, that Jesus did not respect the Sabbath. This wasn't a life and death situation. He could have healed the blind man the next day. And he spat on the ground and made mud. 
Well, that surely constitutes kneading. Like, like you know, when you're, you're kneading dough to make bread, you, you couldn't make mud from saliva and clay without kneading. And if you can't knead dough to make bread, you can't use saliva and clay to make mud. You see, the man's eyes were opened on the Sabbath, but the Pharisees are blinded by the Sabbath. But they're also inconsistent. While upset with Jesus for healing this man on the Sabbath, they don't actually believe he healed the man. It's like, make up your mind. But, but the blind man continues to be met with doubt to be told you weren't born blind and you haven't been healed. Perhaps those of you who have been saved from spiritual blindness know what that is like for your testimony to be met with doubt. Your confession of sin, your repentance is met with doubt. For some, oh, you haven't really changed. You're still the same old sinner. For others, uh, you were fine. You were fun. Why do you have to say sorry? Your new identity in Christ is met with doubt. Your changed behavior patterns are met with doubt. Once you thought like a blind man, spoke like a blind man, acted like a blind man, and now you are in a new world of sight, learning how to walk in the light of Jesus Christ, but people aren't helping you because they don't believe you. People who knew you at your lowest, at your worst, people who hypocritically condemned you at that stage of your life, people who enabled you at that stage of your life, friends who actually liked you better as you were, not as you are in Christ, people who don't even believe you're really in Christ, observers who think you are just passing through some kind of phase, and the doubt around this man Perhaps you identify with it. The doubt around him goes on to cause division, which falls on the lines, interestingly, not of who this man is and whether he can see. There's already been division about that. But the real division is around who Jesus is and whether he is good or whether he is bad. Now they ask the blind man, what do you say about him since he has opened your eyes? The man said he is a prophet. They don't want to believe this, though. That they've just run a prophet out of the temple with, with stones. <laughs> they don't want to believe any of it, that, he, that he's a prophet, that he healed a man, that he just, it, it's unbelievable. But there has to be someone who can help us. <laughs> this, can't, this cannot be real. So they find the man's parents. They think that this perhaps is some sort of juvenile behavior from some sort of uh, man-child acting like a big kid. And so they go and ask his parents, is this your son who says he was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind too. 
But how he now sees, we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He is of age. He'll speak for himself. Now, it should be said, John says this, they knew more than they were letting on. But they deflected the questions because, quite simply, they were afraid. So the doubt turned to division, and the division turns now more explicitly to disbelief and the man's rejection. For a second time, they call in the man after they've spoken to his parents, and they, they, they say, give glory to God. But this man, we know he's a sinner, so stop, stop bigging him up. Give glory to God. Praise him, not this man. The man answered, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. I've never seen the guy. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. The man expresses the simple facts. He doesn't know about Jesus, but he can speak for himself and what Jesus has done in his life. I was blind, but now I see. And you don't have to understand everything right off. You don't have to know the answers to all of life's questions. It's not a sign of blindness for you to have questions or for you to ask those questions if they are indeed asked in good faith. Walk in the light and the light will expose and illuminate what you need. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, and this guy, this guy's sharp. He has a, he has a, a nice bit of salt to what he has to, to say. I've told you already, and, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? People who want to know how to, uh, how to answer your, your interrogators and your accusers, uh, take notes from this guy. They reviled him. Well, maybe not. <laughs> kind of gets under their skin. They reviled him and they said, you are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. And this is a part of their, their ongoing questions about the identity of Jesus in chapter 8. Now this chapter and then in chapter 10, it goes on. The inference very much is that Jesus comes straight out of hell, that he is possessed by demons. Could it be that he is not the Christ, but is Antichrist? He is not the Messiah that people seem to think he is. The man, the man filled with such wisdom, he answered, this, this is an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. Satan doesn't have a habit of going around healing people, of opening their eyes, of delivering people, of doing good things. That's, that's not really his modus operandi. Satan Blinds people. Satan, pe Satan calls people into the outer darkness in which he dwells, right? 
This man says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. So at a minimum, he's saying Jesus worships God. Jesus knows and loves God. God listens to Jesus. He's not saying that about himself because he didn't ask for anything. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him. You just, you just hear this venom, this anger, this fury, this spitting, snarling upset. You were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. They still saw a blind man. Someone who according to their twisted perception of reality was born in utter sin. The question the disciple asked Jesus earlier, you see, was born out of the teaching of that day. Things he would have heard in synagogues and in the temple. Things he would have heard from these very men. That suffering must always come from a specific sin. That this man's blindness must be because he sinned or his parents. That's how they see it. He was conceived by sinful parents. He probably sinned himself in his mother's womb. And that's why he's blind. No amount of vision reversal could redeem him in their sight. He would always sit in darkness he would always be a sinful, poor, blind beggar in their eyes. And watch it. These are the religious people. This is not the, 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 the world around us. But the, 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 this, this skepticism of repentance. And yet it's something that the world around us is emulating even now. I see it all the time. People on all, all, all sides of various issues come to a place of repentance and their repentance is hyper-analyzed and questioned and called into doubt. Their redemption is unacceptable. Oh, who, who, who cares that things were right in the end? They did this. They said that. They were like this. And yet, if we're honest, all of us are tainted by the darkness. All of us know the darkness, sat in the darkness, feel the darkness. All of us need redemption. All of us need sight. This man would always sit in darkness for them. He'd always be that sinful, poor, blind beggar in their eyes, but not to Jesus. And this is where Jesus is different from everything else that this world has to offer. Every message of liberty, every declaration of salvation, Jesus offers salvation full and free to whoever comes to him. The deepest, darkest sinner. Jesus heard that they cast him out of the temple. Remember, this man doesn't know who Jesus is, what he looks like. 
So Jesus goes and finds him. Though cast out of the temple, this blind man, formerly blind, rather, was welcome in the kingdom of heaven. So what? Maybe his blindness was caused by sin. The kingdom of heaven is for sinners who come to Jesus, to whom Jesus has come. Do, do you believe in the Son of Man? Jesus asked. He answered, Who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus replied, You have seen him. Again, because our interpretive location is fundamentally different from those who actually know what blindness is, we do not pause at those words, nor do we reflect on the power that they must have had. You have seen him. Spoken to someone who just a few hours earlier had never seen anything. You have seen him. Seen who? You have seen the son of man. And it is he who is speaking to you. Son of man was a, a Jewish concept recorded by the prophet Daniel of a God-man king who would conquer all of the satanic forces and beasts of the world. Daniel saw him in a vision. To the son of man was given dominion, glory, a kingdom. All peoples, nations, and languages would serve and worship him. His dominion would be an everlasting dominion, which would never pass away. And his kingdom would be one that, 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 that could never be destroyed. And Jesus stands before this man who had previously never seen anything and says, You have seen the Son of Man that the prophet Daniel saw. You have seen the Son of Man, not just a human. Son of man, the perfect human. Son of man, not even just the perfect human. Son of man, the exalted heavenly God man. Being who is not, not only great, but good. Not, not, not only godly judge, but gracious advocate. Fully man who walks with us. Fully God who rules over us and is worthy of worship. And he said, he said, Lord I believe, and he worshiped him. This man who had never seen anything has now seen the Son of Man. He believes, he identifies Jesus correctly as Lord, and he worships him. And Jesus says, for judgment I came into this world. But remember, when God, when God comes to judge, he can judge righteous or he can judge wicked. Judgment is not inherently a bad thing. For some, it is a good thing. It is a saving thing. It is a delivering thing. For judgment, I came into this world that those who do not see may see salvation. And those who see may become blind. Condemnation. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is the light Light transforms and tells the truth. And so it's not always loved because it exposes things that no one wanted to know and no one wanted to see. But, but 
Light is good, fundamentally good, and the darkness has not and indeed cannot overcome it. Apart from Jesus, all of us are darkness dwellers who will die in our sins. We, we, we don't hear or speak the words of God if we don't have the light, if we don't have Jesus. But Jesus gives sight to the blind. Jesus gives sight to those who walk in darkness. Jesus dazzles and blinds those who self-righteously think that they walk in the light but live in doubt. A divided mind and denial of who Jesus is, why Jesus came and what it means. When this man was cast out of the temple, Jesus went and found him. But the way he has come and found us, the way Jesus has come and found us, is by himself being cast out. Not only cast out of the temple, but out of the city itself. Utterly despised and rejected, rendered unclean, torn to pieces, beaten and bruised, blinded by the swollen, welting wounds on his face, the blood, the sweat, and the dirt caking up his eye sockets. He would experience the darkness of death, and yet in his death, he would conquer death and its darkness, and he would deliver us from lifelong slavery to the fear of death. You're still uncomfortable, perhaps, with what I said earlier about God's sovereignty in and over suffering. But I'm telling you, it's in your best interest to believe it. On the day of Pentecost, the Apostle Peter, who knows, maybe this is Peter asking this question. He's certainly one of the people who asked, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents? It sounds like a very Peter thing to say. On the day of Pentecost, Peter, his own eyes opened, would stand and say, you crucified Jesus and killed him by the hands of lawless men. But he also said that Jesus was delivered up to such a murderous death according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus is risen and he was seen and he's coming again to judge the world in righteousness. The word of God says, look, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. On that day, they will mourn over him. My question is, will your tears be tears of grief or tears of gladness? Tears that mourn the sorrows that are yet to come for all eternity or tears that look back at the sorrows and the sufferings of your life and you say, my God has turned it over. He's brought it round. He's brought sight out of the blind. Salvation out of the suffering. Will you be among the blind who were given sight or will you be among those who said we see all while being blind? Blind to your sin, blind to suffering, blind to the needs of a lost and perishing world around you, blind to the only savior from your sins, blind to the only source of blessing in life. You resent me saying it. You resent me saying I'm, 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 that, that, that you're blind, but you don't have a problem when we sing was blind, but now I see. 
Or is that just a cultural thing for you? Stop lying when you sing. Either you were blind, but now you see, or you're saying throughout your life, oh, I, I see just fine. I was blind, but now I see. And I want to see Jesus. I want to see Jesus and what kind of, I, I, I want to see what is in Jesus and what is from Jesus. What kind of love the Heavenly Father has given to us that we should be part of his family. That we should be his children. I want to see his glory. I want to see his goodness. I want to see his grace. I want to see his power. I want to see his blessing at work in my life and in yours. That's why I'm saying this this morning. But we have to see our blindness if he would show us his light. Once, once I was blind, but believed I saw everything. Proud in my ways, yet a fool in my part. Lost and alone in the company of multitudes. Life in my body, yet death in my heart. I will sing of the Lamb. Oh, I will sing of the Lamb. Why should the king save a sinner like me? Hallelujah. Hallelujah. What shall I give to the man who gave everything, humbling himself before all he had made? Dare I withhold my own life from his sovereignty? I shall give all. For the sake of his name. Come to Jesus. Give him your eyes. And he'll give you sight. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning. Yet again, open our eyes. Help us to see. Help us to see Jesus. And as we see Jesus. May we love him and worship him and call him Lord 